0: This podcast contains bad language, jingles, men,
1: references to music and a lady dog. You've been warned. I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton, I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this, that's the plan.
0: How are you doing, listeners? Thank you very much indeed for downloading podcast number 21. I'm back in Norfolk and uh, it's been a busy week. I was doing some shows, doing some podcasting. Some fun ramble chats coming your way in the next few weeks, I hope. But it's very nice to be back home, even though as I walk with Rosie this Friday early evening, it is freezing. I'm wearing gloves. I'm wearing a big coat, a scarf, a head hat, and I'm still quite cold. What the hell's that? probably our fault somehow, isn't it? But still, it's no good. I mean, I think it's a combination of our fault and the UK. Uh, God forbid there should be a sustained period of actual warmth during the summer months. Then it would just be like Los Angeles and everyone would get all laid back and mellow. Nothing would get done. Because Britain runs on frustration, rage, and disappointment. And it's mainly the fault of the weather. None of that's true, of course. I was just being glib. That's my MO. So listen, this week on the podcast, we have for you Mark Riley. Yay! Mark Riley, for those of you not familiar is uh, currently a presenter on BBC Six Music in the UK on the radio. He presents the early evening show during the week. And if you're not already one of his loyal listeners and you decide to tune in, you may well find Mark playing uh, a selection of records by artists like Ezra Furman, uh, the, the Fiery Furnaces, the OCs, he loves the OCs, Kate Le bon, that kind of thing, you know. Alongside older tracks by Captain Beefheart and a bit of Bowie, some Genesis. Or, as he mentions in our conversation, the occasional classic from someone like Britney Spears. He's eclectic! He also features specially recorded sessions from a wildly diverse selection of up-and-coming artists, and that all adds to a sense that Mark is very much a broadcaster in the John Peel tradition of, um, I suppose, laid-back but passionately enthusiastic open-mindedness when it comes to music. And, of course, the other connection with John Peel that springs to mind as far as Mark Riley goes is that he was, between 1978 and early 1983, a member of Peel's favourite band, or at least one of his favourite bands, The Fall, fronted by the brilliant, weird, hilarious and unpredictable Mark E. Smith. Mark Riley played bass and guitar and keyboards for the band at various points, as well as um, being one of the writers on, on a number of early Fall songs until, like many a Fall member before and after him, he parted ways with the band in not entirely amicable circumstances, which he talks about in this conversation. Uh, And as well as other things, we also have a brief uh, Bowie chat, as we both, of course, loved and, and still love, David. But we began by talking about radio and sharing some stories about our humble beginnings therein. So, what do you think, Rosie? I'm gonna go and jump in the grass. All right, you do that, and I'm gonna say, here we go. Did all the business of being like a, a radio DJ come naturally to you? When did you start being a radio DJ?
2: Uh, the first thing I ever did was just by default, and that was because I had a mate who was a DJ on Piccadilly Radio, and um, and Iggy Pop was coming to town, playing the Apollo, and he couldn't he couldn't go, he couldn't interview Iggy, so I went to the uh, Holiday Inn. <laughs> I went to the Holiday Inn to interview Iggy Pop. I never, I'd been on the tail end of it, obviously being in the Fall on the Creepers, people had interviewed me, but I'd never interviewed anybody myself, and uh, I was nervous, really nervous about meeting Iggy Pop, Um, and I do remember I knocked on the door, and the door opened, and I was looking around for a couple of seconds, and then, he's tiny, have you ever met Iggy? No. He's tiny, I was looking over his head, he was almost like, is your dad in? You know, it was uh, it was really because you look at these people. It's the same of Bowie. I'm sure we'll talk more about Bowie, but you know, I don't know if you had a thing about his height or not. But he, I think he used to put five foot seven and a half, or something like the half, is very important. And when you've got this built up kind of icon in your mind, you think you're going to meet David Bowie, and you think he's going to be seven feet tall, don't you? Yeah. You meet Iggy Pop, you think he's going to be seven foot tall, but I'm. Six foot one, probably shrinking a bit now because I'm getting older. But uh, I was, yeah, head and shoulders above both of them. Physically only, obviously. Yeah. Not mentally or anything. And how was Iggy? Really sweet. And, and really, really super intelligent. I mean, that's the thing about Iggy. I don't, know if, I don't know how much you know about his kind of personality or whatever, but it is a Jekyll and Hyde. So he is Iggy when he's on stage, and he's James, Jim Osterberg when he's not. So when does he find time to wrestle with his demons? Like, when do the demons get control of Iggy? Well, do you know, I mean, that's well documented, isn't it? Because Bowie, Bowie almost got him sectioned, I think. So, and and Bowie was the only person who would go and visit him. I think he might have been in California, but he was, yeah, in a, a sanatorium, and Bowie would visit him every day, and then when he came out of it, about 1974, maybe, and then it was coming out of that, that Bowie just, yeah, just took hold of him, and that's when they did The Idiot and... Lust for Life, you know, and traveled, famously traveled around on the uh, Trans-Europe Express, didn't they? And they lived together in Germany. And so I think, I don't think he's really had that many demons since Bowie sorted him out.
0: Yeah. Because everyone, everyone I know that's met him just says how charming he is and.
2: Yeah, he and is. Sweet. He's all art. He's a proper gent. And so, interviewing him, did you think, oh, I can do this? Yeah, I didn't think I could do it, no. Yeah. and I mean, I've not heard it back. I saw the cassette in the cellar about five years ago, and I've not seen it since, you know, so it, it does. It might still be down there somewhere. And was the person that sent you, were they happy with the results? Yeah, he got, he got put out. It was Iggy Pop. I mean, you know, it's Iggy Pop on a local, uh, a local radio station specialist show so he's a big star you know and uh, yeah. yeah no he was all right but I, I never had any idea at all about working in radio and in fact yeah the first time I got offered to do a pilot uh, was for Radio 5 as was when it opened I said well no I've never done a radio program in my life and I've never even thought of it and I said to him you need to try um, a guy called Mark Radcliffe who was working in the building at that point in time, and I used to plug Mark as well. I'd met him previously with Frank Sidebottom, and also he'd produced a couple of creeper sessions for Peel. Right. But I also know, it's all very uh, convoluted, but he used to have the show on Piccadilly that he left to work for Radio 1, and that's when Tony Michaelides took over, uh-huh. who was the guy that I did the interview for Riggy, for. Right. And so I said to Quentin, you should try Mark Radcliffe because he's a presenter and he's in the building and he's not presenting, you know. And so they did um, and and it worked. And and then Quentin came back to me and said, I know you didn't want to present, but do you want to do something every other week, just a 10-minute spot? So I was like, yeah, all right then. But I was terrified, absolutely terrified. Um, but... We did it, but every now and then there was no news. There was nothing happening. yeah. And so I worked it up with Mark, whereby I'd go in and say, well, I saw um, Dermo on the bus the other day, Dermo from Northside, and he'd go, right, okay, what did he do? <laughs> well, he got off at, he got off at <laughs> Alden Market, right, yeah. okay, yeah. What else? Well, not a lot, really, you know. So that kind of slightly comedic relationship built up out of that yeah, the fact that every now and then there was just nothing to say, and rather than just not go in, I just went in and just dicked about. But you know, that's the
0: way a lot of good stuff happens, isn't it? And or or at least good stuff begins. Yeah, um, may, it might not be good instantly, but I used to be on uh, local radio in Cheltenham when I was studying sculpture at uh, art school. Right, this new radio station, CD Six O Three, it was called, opened up there. And I um, got a foot in the door, you know, to cover the, the graveyard slots every right. now and again. Right, I didn't And know also well. to be a um, travel reporter uh, on The Breakfast Show. Right. And they had this guy called Glynn,
3: and uh, I can't remember Glynn's surname, but he, he literally had a voice like that. It was kind of like every single sort of DJ type voice rolled into one guy he used to <laughs> chat about that he's a really nice guy hi glenn and uh, and he'd say right we're gonna go over to uh, adam now who's on the uh...
0: and that the gimmick they had was they used to put me like out and about on a sinclair zike which was like a, a battery powered bike right and um and i would dress up as a cowboy <laughs> I don't don't ask me why but then it like it dawned on me what am I going to say what's actually going to be in the travel reports I don't know what's going on on the roads and they didn't have a computer or anything right I don't know how real tra- how do real travel reports work on the radio they li- they're linked up to a a central I, I, Information I would imagine hub so. I mean, something. it's a bit
2: like the old joke, isn't it? Be like being the weatherman and just sticking your head out the window and saying, yeah, it's raining. So you would just tell everybody what was happening on that particular road that exactly, you were Exactly, yeah. Right. I was like, <laughs> come
0: on the London Road and uh, there's a red car and there's two uh, black ones and it's, all, it's looking pretty good. So uh, I'll check in with you later, Glynn. And so it was like that for a while. And then... After a while, we were told that that was too silly, and mm. that, that they're actually serious was, business. Yeah, serious business being on the on the breakfast show, and also I think people genuinely want to know what the travel situation is. Probably is a bit frustrating. It's yeah. so going
2: over now to uh, Adam for the <laughs> yeah. Here we <laughs> go. Here's another joke.
0: It's like okay, here's a good opportunity to switch over and never listen to CD six hundred three again. So they thought okay, maybe you should do some proper travel. So at that point, but they weren't saying we're going to get. Uh, a computer in to give you some stuff to read out or anything like that i was still out there on the bike so i just used to listen to uh, i remember danny baker was on the radio at that point I used to listen to danny baker copy down the details of his travel reports right. and then do ours like five minutes later and just read those out clever and uh so i did that for a while who
2: needs an infrastructure
0: yeah there's already, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in recycling. <laughs> Why create more travel information when there's already so much out there? It's all the same, isn't it? Yeah. But out of those kind of moments of necessity, you start building stupid little bits and pieces that you think, oh, that was funny that moment.
2: Yeah, is it, is it, yeah. it's just a position whereby there's nothing to lose, really. I mean, yeah. That was it with, with, uh, with Mark. It was just a 10-minute slot every other week. And then they asked me to do it every week. Uh, and that's obviously got a bit more momentum. And then, uh, and then they asked me to be the researcher. And then the whole kit and caboodle went independent. And Radcliffe and I went, formed a company, and got the programme. So I became the producer and the co-presenter. And so that's so it was all, you know, I never had any designs on joining the fall. You know, the only reason I got asked to join the fall was because I would made the first fall T-shirt. So just loads of lucky, right place, right time scenarios for me, you know. Yeah. Never engineered anything that's happened. Everything's just kind of fallen for me. It's just ridiculous, part of the pump. Well, that's the best way to do things,
0: though, isn't it? I think. Don't you reckon? Like, it's it's just... That's how life should be, in a way, yeah. isn't it? You well, I, just... never,
2: I never was in a situation where i had to try too hard because i never knew what i wanted do you know what i mean so i didn't have a chance to blow it getting nervous about it because mm. i never went for it i just got offered things you know it was just yeah
0: yeah it's i i would rather be like that than be tortured by ambitions that oh for sure remain yeah, yeah. unfulfilled and yeah. you know i've had a few moments in my life where opportunities have arisen and i have thought oh that would be great but and and it hasn't worked out And then that's really, you're really gutted. But it's almost worse when outside opportunities are dangled in front of your face. You know, you're doing your own thing. Yeah. And then someone likes it and says, hey, look, here's a chance to take it to the next level. But it breaks you out of the groove of what you've been doing quite well. And then you you try and do something different. It doesn't really work out. And then you just end up thinking, oh, I wish I'd just carried on. Doing my own thing.
2: Well, I mean, yeah, I mean that happened exactly. That happened with with Radcliffe and I with the Breakfast Show.
0: Right, because you ended up becoming sort of like big radio stars.
2: Um, I You're don't too modest that to... far, but I mean, we were on the front cover of the the tabloids. Yeah, it? And it was ridiculous. You were tabloid
0: but... guys, tabloid. You were household names at the at the yeah. very least. Yeah, true enough, and um, you were on big. Uh, Posters, you know, big billboards and yeah, but we really didn't
2: want to do it. And why didn't you want to do it? What were the main things that were off-putting? The whole thing was that uh, yeah, the graveyard shift had become really kind of culturally quite important, and we were having live bands in. I mean, it was like a it was like a sick music show, really. You know, if you think about it, we used to play lots of great old records, we'd play far and all that kind of stuff, and all the new bands coming through and fine new bands. I mean, going from do the blank canvas and it going well, to this really... We knew we were going to be scrutinised, and like, you know, the Goldfish Bowl and the madness of the breakfast show, the the biggest or second-biggest show on the network, and the kind of circus, the PR circus and everything. It just wasn't us, you know, and not to mention the fact that you have to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning. And, yeah, we were getting into work in a foul mood, not having been out the night before or been out to watch TV past 9 o'clock cos you're getting up at 3 o'clock. And it's just no life. And, I mean, you know, you look at people like Wogan and you look at somebody like Chris Moyles, who, you know, what you're talking about growing up and wanting to be a DJ. Chris Moyles was the archetypal sat in front of a mirror with a hairbrush doing links, Uh I believe. I don't know, Chris, but that's what I've read. And that's... He's driven. That was it. For him, his ambition would be to get the Radio 1 Breakfast Show. But for Radcliffe and I, it was just a real... It was a poison chalice in in many ways, because Chris Evans was so popular, and we didn't want to do it. So how many reasons do you need not to do it? Yeah. It was all there, but... um,
0: And were there not periods where you thought, oh, this might be okay." you know, it'll take a bit of adjusting to, but we'll get into it?
2: No. No, No, it was hell. It really was awful. And, And they came up with the brilliant conclusion that people didn't want to get out of bed and listen to two cantankerous northern men... Northern, that was a particular kind of uh, uh, gnarly issue, I think. And even got to the point where they said, you need to speak, you need to do less in that half hour. And so we engineered this mechanic whereby I was only allowed six words in the first half hour. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we'd start and say, you know, like, OK, Lard, now you do realise you're, you're only allowed to say six words in this half hour. Yes, that's five now. OK. Is that two or one? No, one. You've got four left. Uh, would you make me a cup of tea? Yeah, do you want sugar? Oh, and that was it. Yeah. I, I wouldn't speak then for the rest of the half-hour market. segue. Like, do a couple of very dry links or whatever. And then at 7 o'clock, we were allowed to speak again, you know. Yeah. And then fortunately, because it was Nicky Campbell who'd vacated the graveyard shift, and we got it, and then he vacated the afternoon show. So we got that as well. So we were just following Nicky Campbell around the schedule, really, not with the breakfast show, but... Um, and how did that feel, though? Did you, were you relieved or did you feel like you'd failed? or? It was a weird time because I think that because of the nightmare we'd been through, I think we were nervous about it, you know. I think we were really... Because uh, we had failed and we thought, right, what if the graveyard shift was a one-off? What if that was just like, right place again, right time, everything fell into place, people liked us, now people don't like us anymore... They understandably might not give us a second chance in the afternoon, but you know within six months, I think maybe less. We felt very comfortable with it, very confident it was going really well, it got loads of listeners we got like eight million listeners, I think you know which is quite ridiculous for that time of day and and that's when we started mixing it up again and bringing the mischief in and you know, we got Kylie Minogue to do jingles for us, and Radio One wouldn't touch Kylie Minogue at that point in time. And we got to do things like Mark and Lard, at least four good records in every program because Radcliffe chose four records. Uh-huh. There were four free choices; the rest was playlist.
0: And do you think back to those days and miss the atmosphere that there used to be in the Big British Castle? Then
2: um, it's just completely different. I always say the difference between the job I've got now and the job I had then is like the difference between being a welder and a ballet dancer. I'm not saying one's better than the other, though. I Actually, this is the this is the best job I've ever had for me personally, because uh, yeah, I don't I don't don't play the playlist. I pick all the music, pick the bands, and it is it's a it is a matter of trust, you know. Because I mean, I always say, you know, every now and then I will play Toxic by Britney Spears, not out of any perversity. I just think it's a great record. Sure, you know, I maintain that if Diana Ross had had made that record or the Shangri-Las in 1966. People have got what a great pop record plus
0: it's it's uh, that 's the great thing about music and the great thing about the the art of the d j if I can refer to it that way is that when you play a piece of music, it changes according to what 's around it the record you played before and the record you play afterwards you know yeah and uh it 's totally different if you hear um, Wichita lineman in a whole series of you know on a on a mainstream radio show that only plays kind of accessible country-sounding songs. It sounds very different to Wichita Lyman sandwiched in between a, a Pixies record and, uh, you know, something yeah. Polly Arvey or whatever. It's
2: dead true. Yeah, that is it. You know, you, and, yeah, i put something on. i put, you know, every now and then I do slip my neck out. But, I like, put, um, uh, I put... Feel, I Feel For You, Chaka Khan. I played that a couple of weeks ago. And the only violence that I got was from a mate who sent me a text with a, a fist, you know, <laughs> on the text. But... People are they're, they're probably just thinking, oh, God, I know what he's doing, all right, well, I'll go and make a brew and I'll be That's back a in a minute.
0: That's a stone-cold classic,
2: come on. Yeah. Well, for me, it is. There's no perversity at all. And there's no, like there's no perversity in me playing You Do Right by Can, which lasts 20 minutes long, or Supper's Ready, which is 23 minutes long by Genesis. You know, it, I think the nice thing about Six Music is that it's got
0: um, people used to the idea that, that you can hear all sorts of different music and there there isn't that sort of silly snobbery anymore. You know, I mean... There was Sean Rowley who used to do All Back to Mine
2: yeah. and,
0: uh, and do the uh, Guilty Pleasures yeah. thing. But that whole notion, I mean, I really like Sean and what he was doing, but I didn't like that notion of
2: guilty pleasures. It's not, there's,
0: there's no such thing as a guilty pleasure. There's a song that you like.
2: Yeah, you like it, you don't like You're it. You're not and wandering around
0: going, oh, I shouldn't like this.
3: Yeah.
2: And, you know, it's just basically all born out of the fact that some people want to just seem to be cool. You know, and not admit to liking something that isn't, in inverted commas, cool. It's just rubbish. It's not a guilty pleasure. You know, if you like Waterloo by Abbey, you like it because it's a great pop record. There's nothing shameful in that. No, 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 no,
1: no, 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 no,
2: no, no, no. I always say the second best thing that ever happened to me professionally was getting asked to join The Fall. And the best thing that ever happened to me was getting kicked out of it.
0: So how old were you when you joined The Fall then? Uh, I was 16. 16? And were you roadieing for them or something?
2: Yeah. And I'd gone back to, I'd gone back to St. Greg's to do resit some O-levels and do some A-levels.
0: You were pals with a couple of members of The Fall, though, right? I mean, you'd been at school with... But,
2: no, but they weren't in the band until after me. Oh, I see. So we were in a band, actually. Me, Craig Scanlon and Steve Hanley were in a band called The Sirens, which were like more like buscocks, really, but yeah. terrible. Um, no, what it was, I'd made a fall T-shirt. I remember cutting the stencil. I mean, that's a fateful moment because everything got triggered by that one moment. If you could look at one moment in my life where everything changed, it was me in the garden on a sunny day with a piece of cardboard and a scalpel or a razor blade cutting out a fall stencil.
0: Because you loved them
2: yeah and do i mean they were still just supporting people at rafters you know they were supporting penetration and wayne county and the electric chairs they weren't a big band uh, and smithy just saw me one night in the in the lose actually at rafters i was on my way out and he was on the way and he saw the t-shirt he said do you want to be a roadie and so i ended up lugging the gear around for the fall for maybe i don't know maybe about five months or something but the bass player that they had at the time was he was he was older, the guy, he used to work with John Cooper Clark and stuff, and he just he wasn't he wasn't impressed by any of it. And I remember he uh we were going to do the first peel session and I was still a roadie and we pulled up at his house and um I'm still not sure of why, but we had a conga player called Steve Davis and he wasn't in the band, but he came along for that session. I think it might have been because the more people that went, the more money you got. You got an extra MU fee. So but he just opened up the door and he went, I'm not getting in any effing van that's got congers in it, and slammed the door shut, went back in. (laughs) What's his problem with congers? Well, he wasn't having it. I think maybe it masked some other kind of problems he was having. I don't know, but that's what he said anyway. I mean, it was a very kind of a a great flouncing gesture and a very quotable kind of scenario. I'm not getting in any van with effing congers. Bang. Yeah. So we went down to Maida Vale and Martin Brahma... Played bass and guitar. I just did overdubs, and then yeah, about three or four days later, Mark rang me up and said, "Do you want to join?" Why? Why did did he know that you played bass, or? Yeah, yeah, he knew I was in a band with Craig and Steve, and we used right. to go and see The Fall all the time. So he, he knew me well enough, you okay. know. But that was a kind of genesis of Mark wanting to have the power base of the band, and he always has. Really, he's always had somebody else alongside him who would be his backup. And when I got asked to join, I think they were probably not that happy about that either because they wanted their mate Paddy Garvey, Steve Garvey, to join because he was a really great bass player. Uh, But Mark wanted me in, again, thinking perhaps I've got him in, he'll be on my side and the power balance and all that. Steve Garvey went on to join Buzzcocks. He was in the classic Buzzcocks lineup, so he, he... he got out of jail yeah um but uh so the disquiet in the fall was growing and growing and when we were recording live at the witch Childs, remember we had no money so it was already bubbling and not long after martin left and formed the blue orchids with una who'd already left the fall before i joined so yeah that was that was the start of it all and that's how that's how the whole fall ethos and and the legend of Sixty odd members, kind of. Uh-huh. That's where it all kind of came together. I think.
0: Right. So it w- it was becoming less a band and more Mark's project.
2: Yeah, I think that I think it's true to say that Mark saw it as an opportunity to not only control it kind of artistically, but also be in control of the money. I was getting I'm not. I ain't complaining, but I was getting one pound less in the fall than I was on the dole. I, I like I say really not complaining, but it just shows you. It, was, uh, it wasn't really a living wage I and mean, we'd spend most of it going and buying a couple of rounds in Presswich and Bus fare.
0: Were you then sort of resistant to some of the musical ideas that Mark had? I mean, how did it work? I've always been curious about how involved is he in actually doing the songs? Does He, he doesn't sit there with a the guitar and say, hey, I, I thought of a lovely melody today.
2: No. I mean, every now and then he might say... You might say uh, very seldom, really. We'd say like maybe. I'm, I wonder if I go. <laughs> you know, from my point of view, it was it really was uh, me and Craig were just writing all the music. Mm. And what sort of? I
0: remember you talking about nervous, nervous, um, transfusion, yeah. transfusion.
2: I'm never, never, never going to speed again. A yeah. rumble, yeah. And you hear. Uh, uh, yeah, you'd hear lots of stuff coming through that Mark had picked up that was quite obscure, and so whereas other people would be ripping off the Stooges or the Velvets, he'd be taking Nervous Norvus, or maybe, you know, You would Have to Be Weird to Be Wired, You would Have to Be Weird to Be Weird It's Captain Beefheart. You uh-huh. know? So he was, he was taking stuff, or referencing stuff, if you like. But And yeah, was he, he playing you those records and...? Yeah, he was a great education, he played me B-Fart, I didn't know B-Fart, he played me The Seeds, didn't know them, played me We're Only In It For The Money by Zappa, which I love, don't like most things Zappa, but I love that. Um, I thought the world of marker really did, you know, but he just, he, he treated us pretty badly, you know, he's spending more on fags a week than we were getting paid. But was it fun though when you got on stage? Did 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 you stop
0: thinking about all that kind of stuff or were you so frustrated by the whole lifestyle that, that, that it ruined the fun of playing No, together.
2: Oh, no, it never ruined it. But, I mean, he was, he, he, his person, you got to understand that Mark was probably, when I joined the band, Mark, about four years older than me. He's probably 20, I think. But he already had a lot of kind of the uh, mannerisms of a, a much, much older person, you know, and an older person's mind. I mean, he, he said to me once, I remember, he said, oh, you know, people bathe too much these days. They don't have their own smell anymore. <laughs> You know, and things like that. Which, you know, if somebody was to say that they were fifty years old when you're sixteen, you go, well, that's kind of. But that was Mark said that he's got a, a really, really strange way of looking at the world and scenarios, and and that's what makes what he does pretty special. I think you know, it's like beef art viewed things in a different way, and it's not a contrived thing. I think you know. I don't know what people would say about Mark's personality or whatever, but he's definitely uh, a bit different to most people, you know?
0: Yeah, exactly. As you uh, say, that's what people buy into. Yeah. They like the uh, totally unpredictable perspective that he has
2: on, on things. And ironically, you don't have to be weird to be weird sums it up because, you know, it's like I'm mad, me. Yeah. As we know, anybody who says I'm mad isn't mad. Yeah.
0: So you were there, you were in the fall from around 79 to about 83? The beginning of 83, yeah, yeah, just under five years. And um, I unwittingly tweeted a clip of you guys on Australian TV, <laughs> yeah. not realising that that was kind of pinpointing almost the exact moment that you... Decided that you had to leave.
2: Well, I didn't leave. I was kicked out. I will make that very clear. But um, uh, the, again, what I say about that is, I was I was pushed, but I had my parachute ready because it was it just wasn't good. You know, that was the morning after um, the first night in Australia, and so we'd gotten there the day before. Obviously jet lagged completely out of sync with the day and night. You both look totally dazed
0: on this interview. Yeah. Like Mark looks as if... I mean, he looks like a kind of mutant gargoyle. And every now and again, the camera cuts to you and you're, you're looking sort of shifty and yeah. furtive.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of documented now, but we did a gig, it was all right, we were all jet-lagged. And then we went to... And we were, obviously, then got pretty drunk. Don't take much when you're jet-lagged. To get yeah, exactly. Drunk. Um, we went to a nightclub, and we never really danced. But we were kind of, like, delirious, I think, really. But it was me, Craig, Stephen, um, Paul, on the dance floor. And I saw Smith come over and slap one, slap two, slap three. So being a bright kind of character, I realised I was number four. And so before he got a chance, I grabbed his uh, his arm and pushed him against the wall. And I do... I, re- I honestly remember he looked at me like he'd just seen the devil. He's like... How dare you, you know? And then he stormed off. And then I. Why was he slapping the others? For dancing. We were dancing to rock the Casbah, and he didn't think that the four should be seen to be dancing. And that is, you know, in one way you could say, yeah, it's not very cool. But on the other hand, it's like, you know, it is a, a contrived kind of embarrassment about, you know, people just doing what they want to do. It's not as though we were. Boy, how
0: crazy do you have to be to translate that? Uh, uh, embarrassment into deciding to go and publicly slap someone on a dance floor. Because that's Mark's kind of... That's was it, I mean, I'm that curious stick. to know that if he was... like, Do you think there was a part of him that thought it was funny? No. He was genuinely... He was
2: showing everybody in the club that he's a boss and he wouldn't put up with that kind of thing. That's I'm what not
0: going to put up with people yeah. dancing to rock the Casbah. Yeah. It's and, not
2: on. And so like, we walked over and I was at the front and uh, he was stood behind his table with Kay, but it was like a comedy film because he was rolling his sleeve up. As I walked towards him, right, rolled his sleeve up over his elbow, and I got toward him and I said, "What the fuck was that all about?" And he hit me in the face, and so I hit him back, and you know, I mean, I'm not a fighter, I'm you know, get that clear now, but uh, yeah, I hit him a lot harder than he hit me, and he went down, and he came up covered in blood, uh-huh. and he, it's documented in Steve's book actually was saying, "Get the police!" I'm being assaulted. And then a bouncer came over and grabbed me round the neck, grabbed Mark round the neck, threw us both out. So that was it then. I thought, well, that's—I'll be going home in the morning. And yeah, there was a knock on the door first thing, and it was Kay. She said, Are "You out of bed?" So I said, "All right, I'm going home, Mama." She went, "No, no, you're doing a TV interview with Mark." I was like, "What?" And she went, "Yeah, come on, we've got to go. The cab's outside, just waiting for us." I'm going, "Really?" She went, "Yeah, he's been asking for that for years anyway." That's what she said. Um, and we got on, it was very frosty with Mark and I, as you can imagine. And he had a black eye. Um, and so we went into makeup and we covered the black eye up. Um, and we did the interview with on Kids TV, like a kind of Tiz Was kind of programme with this Donny. Donny, he's nice. I like Donny. Yeah, Donnie. lovely guy. You know, and, he, and he
0: winds up this very awkward interview by by sort of chuckling away and <laughs> and going the four. What a couple of lovely guys. Yeah, yeah. You know, like uh,
2: he does. He makes some barbed comments along the way, but why wouldn't he? You know? I mean, he seems to genuinely like you. I mean, he's
0: he's he's kind of chuckling away, and 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 yeah, there's this there's kind of um, light jazz bubbling away underneath the it's whole like I can't interview. Anything. You know, just to keep it all light.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great. But yeah, so and that was it. And so we did another four or five weeks in Australia, and and they were good. I mean, there's that fall in a whole album from New Zealand, which was a next step, uh, the next stage of that tour. We had a week in New Zealand, at which point, you know, the thought of going New Zealand, great, but we didn't want to. We we're all knackered, and we were jaded with each other at that point in time. Mm. See, the things with Mark is that he's hit people previously, but the people don't hit him back. And is it, that's what he expects. He expects to be able to hit people like he... In the old days, I'm not saying it's the same now, but he used to just think he could hit people because he was paying their wages and they wouldn't hit him back. Mm. So when we got... This didn't help. <laughs> when we got to New Zealand, the live dream of a casino was in the top 20. It seemed really bizarre, but it was. So when we got to the airport, we were all really jaded and fed up. Uh, and there was paparazzi there because this top 20 band are coming to New Zealand, so not many bands went anyway, and we were in the top 20. And so... We got out there and somebody went, there's loads of photographers here to take photographs. And we're like, what? We got out and they were there. And so I just, I did this, I stuck my boot out. I've got these really tight jeans on with big boots on and a leather jacket. And I've got this carrier bag in this hand of my guitar and that. And I've got my leg kicking up. Well, the next morning I was asleep and I could hear... Um, the cleaner coming to the the chalet that we were staying, he's going, "Oh, where is he then? Where's this guy? Where is he?" And they're going, "What do you mean? I'm going this guy here on the front of the paper?" And so it was the biggest newspaper in broadsheet in New Zealand, and it had Happy Fall guitarist, <laughs> and then but that really really hacked Smith off that I not only again a bit like the Rock the Casbah thing, he's a Happy four guitarist right, rather than right, these right, industrial right. industrial northern you know doom merchants or whatever. Um, so that didn't go down <laughs> so well. Uh, and uh, yeah, and then when we got back, we did a couple more gigs, and, uh, yeah, he, he t- Mark tells a story, but he likes to tell a yarn, you know, that makes him look good, and he, his story was always that he rang me up on Christmas Eve, which is the day that me and Trace got married, and, uh, and he, he said, I rang him up, and he said, oh, hi, Mark, hey, yeah, me and Trace have just got married, and I said, congratulations, you're sacked, but it didn't happen like that. Not told Smith I was getting married... Um, and Steve was my best man, so me and Trace got married, the very last people on Christmas Eve in Sale Town Hall, Steve was my best man. When it opened again on the 2nd of January, Steve and Heather got married in the same place, the very first people to get married, and I was his best man, and Smithy wasn't told about that either. Uh, And it was a day, it was that day actually maybe, that he rang... Steve reminded me of this because I've got a terrible memory, but, yeah, the, the the phone went in his house and we're all having a party after he's got married. I anyway, know, it's Mark for you. Why is he ringing me here? I don't know. And they just went, oh, am Mark. Hey, yeah, I'd like to meet you tomorrow in the old Garrett pub in on Princess Street in Manchester. Yeah, OK. So I thought, Ryan's on the wall, there Yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh yeah, and then I went out to see him and they said, Oh, we're gonna to tour Europe without him, and if he doesn't work, well I should have come back. <laughs> I was like, oh, you're all right. Thanks, anyway. In
0: the days that you were in the band, would he do the thing that he does now of wandering around and sort of sabotaging the musicians on stage and turning their amps down or pushing their keyboards over or whatever?
2: Um he would interfere with the with the volumes every now and then. Um but no, I think that don't they call it as it's got the uh the the title of on stage mixing okay right he's <laughs> he's
0: like playing the whole band
2: as uh, an yeah instrument. yeah just you know real proper swangalike and tell everybody exactly where they need to be yeah. and how how loud they need to be because he's that great I mean it's pretty it's horrible to watch really um, but the the meltdown in New York have you seen have you seen the oh yeah Browns yeah, where he gets yeah. on stage eventually with just Julian Nagel and says if it's me and your granny on bongos it's the fall famously um, have you seen that?
0: Uh, I think I, I tried to watch it, but it seemed too grim.
2: Yeah, it is grim. At one point, Carl jumps over the drum kit and grabs him by the throat. Um, he drops a microphone. The guitarist kicks him up the backside. Then he gets up. It's a bit like a comedy. But there's one point where he's trying to get past Steve Hanley to turn Steve's bass down, and Steve's just shuffling from side to side like a football <sighs> oh defender, God. trying not to let the attacker get past him, you know? Yeah. Um, he was just hammered, though, wasn't he? Yeah. I think in those days he was a... Yeah, kind of I don't know, I wasn't in the band, but, right. you know, he likes to drink, so...
0: Um, so then you then you uh, had another
2: band, though, after the fall. Yeah, the Creepers, didn't really amount to anything. We were going for about five years. Um, and you managed to... At, at that
0: point, he, Mark had already written the Mark Riley song, was that right?
2: Hey, Mark Riley, which is just Hey Bo Diddley, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Which and, was supposed to be a dig, was it? Oh, yeah. yeah. I think the words are he's got a spider, he's got a snake, he's got four musos out his wake, I think.
0: But then you wrote a little comeback track Jump <laughs> a Clown.
2: Yeah, that was about Mark. Uh, got
0: into so it's like you're in a you're in a, a Lennon and McCartney digging war. It was pathetic, really. <laughs> I mean we were calling
2: each other names in the press and that,
0: And you yeah. mentioned I think the the lyrics to Jumper Clown reference the Australian dance floor yeah, incident. Don't yeah, they?
2: Dare to Dance on an Aussie Floor, Blooded Nose, Blooded bore, I think. Yeah. So uh, you know, I am a massive fan of Mark's. So I think he's great and you know, they were my favourite band when I joined them, but yeah. I just I think if you look back over his career, he does. He needs to be able to vent his spleen or take the piss out of people around him. It doesn't seem to be anything else that really fires him up. But does it? Presumably, you don't get any pleasure from listening to Fall records anymore. Uh, well, I don't listen to. I don't listen to the Creepy records. I don't listen to the Fall records. I mean, it was funny because I went to um, record store day uh, to Piccadilly and I had Roche Rumble blasting out. And, uh, and I just yeah, I went through to him and said, take this off. <laughs> I, oh, I, you're not on this one, are you? Yes, I am, yeah. Oh, all right, yeah. What do you do? You know, just... And I, I heard Rov Rumble for the first time in a long time the other day.
1: Now and then I like to stop the chat and put the jingle in. It stops the ramble topics leaking out and mingling. And if you like, you can take a little dance. Move your body around inside your pants. the podcast. Who's this guy? I don't know.
0: I've got a gift for you, Mark. There you go. It's, uh, cinnamon and tea tree oil infused toothpicks. <laughs> You're a gent. Thank you very much. You They're great because you, you can chew them. I mean, So you pick out whatever food you have in your teeth. Brilliant. But then you can leave them in your mouth and sort of suck on them and chew on them and the, the, this very strong cinnamon and tea tree essence Great. is secreted and it's just delicious and um uh, and i'm i'm going to be very name droppy and say how i came to have them first ed ed from radiohead right he had some he's into all that kind of stuff and then jonathan ross i saw about a week after bowie died and um he said have one of these and my special toothpicks he had a little toothpick holder and everything little silver holder he said bowie turned me on to these this is what he used to use to give up smoking really yeah oh wow the only thing i would say is that they have really a very strong odor it's it it ends up smelling a bit like a kind of um you know what i mean by like a sort of funky animal fur skin have you ever felt like maybe like a if you go close to a moose or a bear (laughs)
2: you mean musk yeah, Are we talk like a like off an elephant or something, right? Or, it's like or, a well, but but, but but
0: but a creature with thick fur,
2: right? Okay, but yeah. anyway, do they do they keep the flavor? Did they, once you've opened it, do they? Oh yeah, oh, oh yeah, right. good man. No, they're really well, good. Well, if it's good enough for you and Bowie, I'm in, mate. I'm in. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, we were talking about Bowie last night when I saw you, and uh, and I was doing the the bug special. You had a few encounters with him,
2: though, right? Yeah, met him met him quite a lot. Introduced him on stage three times, and. The last time I met him it was kind of yardstick in my own mind as to how well I got to know him, I didn't ask for his autograph for the first time. It was, you know, he was kind of like, "Oh, I didn't ask for his autograph then," but I've got it ten times already. It's a bit embarrassing. And so, yeah, I've got to know him. I got to know him quite well, and he was always really, really sweet and playful, and again, clever. Like Iggy, that's probably why they were just such good mates, you know, because they were uh, they were cut from the same cloth, really. And, yeah, I had a lot of fun with him, you know. It was just great. Because, he, you know, I even said to him, would you do a, a phone call for me, an answering machine message? Yeah. Cause, and the ruse being the phone. I say, I've got an interview with David Bowie today, and then <laughs> it was like a bit Mark and loud really, but it was on Six Music. I'd say, all right, I'm going to put a record on now, and I'm going to go for a leak. Uh, this is whatever. Dead Kennedy's Holidays in Cambodia. I'd do the sound effect of a door going, and then the phone ringing. And then the phone stops, and then I come back in and carry on, and then the voicemail goes, and I go, oh, God, who's this? I missed a call. And it was him going, Mark, Mark, are you there? Mark, <laughs> it's David. You're not there, are you? Oh, God. All right, I'll try again, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, And I ran it every week for about six weeks, saying he's going to ring today and I'm not going to miss it, and then it'd be like, Michelle, the pop red in the door. And go, Mark, your car's getting clamped. Oh, right, OK. Then, <laughs> ding, ding. But... I mean, David Bowie you don't have to do that for you know for me on a station that had barely any listeners at that point 2004 or whatever Um, what do you think your favourite
0: Bowie album is overall which is the one you keep going back to
2: I think it's Young Americans is it yeah
0: Um, and it's so different to the rest of his stuff isn't it
2: and, of course, when it came out, I was a little bit kind of unsure about it. But yeah,
0: it's the one that took me longest to get to grips with. Yeah, I can imagine, yeah. Well, you see, Young Americans has got Across the Universe on it, which I didn't... I wasn't fond of that version.
2: You're right, but he didn't write it, so he'll have to let him off. Yeah. And, do you know, I mean, the original, the original album didn't have that on, did it? Or fame, Gauster. Right. Yeah, he recorded an album called Gauster, which he'd never released, so Tony Visconti made this album, Gauster, the Gauster, I think. Then he hooked up with Lennon, went in the studio, did Fame, obviously a great tune and, and was a kind of focal point for the album. And they did Across the Universe, probably just because they could. And I thought of Bowie sitting there doing a Lennon song with Lennon. So it's kind of a little bit...
0: That's right. And then he was probably too embarrassed to leave it off. Probably.
2: <laughs> uh, but yeah, so yeah, I could live without that particular track, but it's, yeah. it's good enough.
0: Yeah, they're, they're, they're all great. I've, I've had so many points in my life that are marked out by little love affairs with individual tracks you know right yeah um especially when i was younger and getting to know them uh funnily enough lodger made a big impression on me because it's one of those albums that i suppose critics say oh it's not quite as good as some of the other ones or it didn't really work as well as the as low or heroes but i really love some of that stuff on there
2: well station to station for me is up there as well yeah and I saw that tour, and I do remember, you know, in all honesty, being a little bit disappointed because I had terrible seats right at the back of Wembley Arena. John Conti was sat in the row behind me, uh-huh. and he was like a boxing champion at that point in time. So I don't know. I don't know he obviously didn't do his job properly there, but um, <laughs> so I was miles away. Uh, and, I, you know, I'd been watching Cracked Actor, looking at the photographs of Bowie doing these amazing stage shows in America just desperate to see him doing all of these great routines and the dance routines and getting tied up by Jeff McCormack, Warren Peace and all that kind of stuff. Then, of course, he just comes with a stark, bright white light and, and the suit, you know, classic, chilling stuff, really amazing. But at that point in time, you know, yeah, I was 15, got a coach to London, got a coach back the same night to Manchester and I just wanted him to be doing some... You know some of his theatrics, and we didn't get any of it. But that's that's great. You learn as you get old and a bit more mature. Yeah. That's what it was all about, wasn't it? It was. Not but it's disappointing
0: you no- when you're young, though, isn't it? Because I had the, I had that same sort of experience. Admittedly, I didn't see that uh, tour. I saw um, Glass Spiders, which is a different of cod, really. But mm. you, you're when you build it up so much as a teenager it can't possibly live up to those expectations or those desires when you go and see Mm. your hero live. And all my favorite experiences watching live music have been surprises when maybe you didn't even know the band right? and you find yourself in a bar on holiday or something. And there's only 10 people there and someone starts playing in the corner and you're like, Oh, this is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, or I mean, I love the band spoon. Right. And I saw them in London at the borderline and, uh, I was right at the front of the stage and it's a tiny little room because they're a big band in America, but yeah. no one, I mean, comparatively they're, they're much less well-known in the UK. So it was uh, a small, really small gig for them, but oh my God, it was so great. It's one of those things I'll always remember. What have been those moments for you when you've just had a, uh, a, a musical
2: epiphany? Well, the last one was watching the OCs at the ATP bash in November Um and I've been after seeing them for years. I tried to watch them in there, uh, Liverpool, a few years ago, but it was one of those urban festivals, and the, the club was full. The Casmere now sadly gone, and there was a queue of two hundred people outside, and I oh, could have been a bit of a twat about it and gone and tried to get in, you know, yes. but I couldn't bring myself to do it. Yeah. And so, um, no, so I didn't see oh, them. Right. Um, but I saw them. Uh, so I've been, you know, I always say that the two different artists that I want to get in session more than anybody else to I knew some and the O.C.'s. Um, and it just never worked out with the OCs, and they've not played Manchester for years, and when they did play, I wasn't here. Um, So when I got to see them at um, Pontins, Prestatin, I thought it was going to explode. It was that exciting, you yeah. know, just the best band in the world for me you now. And they
0: lived up to it.
2: Oh, yeah. John Dwyer is the daddy, you know, because I love all that. I love that LA garage scene anyway, um, but that was, that the OCs, blew me away um, and I do remember seeing these new Puritans playing at the Night and Day Cafe in Manchester around the first album Beat Pyramid that was just a real moment for me that was incredible and also at the Night and Day Cafe the Fiery Furnaces is doing Widow City mm. one of the greatest things I've ever seen Thanks so much, Mark. Pleasure. A real pleasure, yeah. Always um, nice to see you. Yeah, likewise. I've never done one of these before. It's intriguing. Have you ever done a drunken one?
0: No. I mean, I feel I feel inarticulate enough when I'm stone-cold sober. <laughs> I think it would just be a disaster. Well, you know, that's
2: not true, but yeah.
0: Have you ever been pissed on the air?
2: Yeah, have you? Yeah. Well, how is that? Uh, it was that? Uh, it was just the night-time show, so long, going back a long way, but we would go, Mark and I would go to the BBC club to now have some food, and then you'd have a pint, and then you might have two pints, and then if you're getting a bit carried away, you would unwise have three pints, and then quite often <laughs> when somebody, when we'd have a guest in, could be Simon Armitage, Mark Kermode, Will Self, whoever, we would sometimes have a few beers, and so, particularly on a Thursday night, so if the few beers on air just took place after three or maybe four in the club, then you got a little bit giddy at times, but I don't think any real misdemeanors took place.
0: No, you never swore on air?
2: No, um, no, I didn't. Um, I do remember there was at one point, and I think it just we were sick of the sight of each other, to be honest, Mark and I, but um, have you ever heard that joke where... The blo- a woman sits down at the breakfast table and the husband says to the wife, I hate you, I hate everything about you, I loathe you, you are a despicable person and I wish I could never see you again. I wish you would disappear from my life and everybody else's life. You're vile and you blah, blah, blah. And then the wife says, I beg your pardon? And he says... <gasps> I'm sorry. I just meant to say, "pass a call, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, Not the greatest gag in the world, but it was a little. I remember sitting opposite uh, Mark one day, and uh, we were talking about the Sweeney for some reason. I think we're giving away a Sweeney box set, and um, and he said, uh, "And like I say, I think we've had enough of each other." And uh, for whatever reason, and and he said, "Do you like the Sweeney?" I said, oh, "Yeah, it's all right." And he said. Uh, they fucking spoon-feed you the shit and you lap it up. <laughs> I was like, really?
0: And you were live on air?
2: Yeah, and he's like, because he immediately like, put a record on, and then the phone's going, and then he comes out of it, and, and then he said, well, I'm, really, I'm really sorry about that, I don't know where that came from, I'm, I apologise, profusely. he was very really unprofessional, I'm sorry. So, job done. And then he put a record on, and went, I don't know where that came from. He said, I don't even mind the Sweeney. <laughs> So it was one of them, exactly like that gag where he's probably looking at me thinking, oh, I'm sick of the sight of you and I'm sat there thinking, I'm sick of the sight of you and then but I kept a lid on it better than he did, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. Pleasure. Real pleasure. Thank you.
0: This is an advert
1: for Squarespace.
0: go thanks very much indeed to mark riley really appreciate him giving up his time and coming on the podcast as he said not something that he would necessarily normally do i think he's probably more comfortable sitting in the presenter chair for his own show talking about other people's music and that kind of thing but i was really glad that he was up for coming on and uh talking to me so cheers mark Anyway, um, at the end of last week's podcast with Ian Lee, I was referring to the fact that I was off to see Radiohead at the Roundhouse in London, and it was uh, a really fun evening. I had a great time, and my son was with me, as I said. It was his first big show that he'd seen by a band that he actually knew and liked, because he's, he's pretty into Radiohead, and um, I think he, he was always politely interested in them before, because he knew I liked them, and and he was uh, interested in the fact that, you know, I knew these rock stars, but um, he has since sort of discovered their music for himself, and really got into it, and really got a lot out of it, so he was very excited, and so I was able to experience the gig somewhat vicariously enjoying his delight at what was going on when they started to play songs he liked especially and you know and also to enjoy his general excitement at the strangeness of the experience of going to a gig for the first time because it is very intense isn't it when you if you think back to the first time you ever did that sort of thing it's a powerful experience all those people together focused on the same thing and especially with a band like Radiohead who command such a, a lot of Excitement and and devotion and their songs are so emotional a lot of the time. It was really a great experience for for me and for my son, I hope. What was also very powerful was the occasionally intense irritation that I felt a few times when people nearby where we were, and we were sat right up at the back on, um, on the balcony at the roundhouse, but there was a couple of guys, well, there was a few people behind us and a couple of guys to, to the side of us who just insisted on chatting quite a lot.
3: Yeah, I wasn't so keen on King of Limbs. Oh, uh, never really did it for me. I mean, it's good. You know, it's very good. If it was a record by any other band, then you'd think, yeah, this is a good record. But as a Radiohead record, I thought, mm, I don't know. You know, I'm not, get- I'm not getting, I'm not feeling it. And you've always got to give their records a few listens, don't you, before they really click. But this one never really did click. I mean, I think the last really classic record was probably In Rainbows. And I really feel that Moonshaped Pool is kind of like the spiritual follow-up to
0: In Rainbows. etc. etc. Valuable insights. Sound observations. But here's a thought. Why not share them at some later point? When the band that you're talking about aren't actually a few metres away from you in the same fucking room playing the actual fucking songs that you supposedly love so fucking much. What about
1: that as an idea?
0: Yeah? Whoa. Chill out, buckles, you old fart. I bet you've done it before. Yes, I probably have had a little chit-chat in a gig at some point in my life, but I wouldn't do it now and... So that's the most important thing. Everyone else has to do the things that I want now, because this is now. All right. Anyway, good news if you're a Radiohead fan and, uh, and if you're a fan of Ramble Chats in general, because I had a good one with Johnny Greenwood of the band Radiohead, which I hope to have ready to present to you at some time in the next week or two. So look out for that. But that is it for this week. Thanks very much indeed to Seamus Murphy Mitchell for production support and to Matt Lamont for additional edit whiz-bottery. And thank you for listening right to the end. You are a true podcat and one of my most favourite people. And I'm sure you don't talk at gigs. I've got to chill out, don't I?
1: Actually, no, I don't have to chill out. I've got to warm up
0: currently is what I've got to do. I've got to get home and build a fire or something. Um, but hey, listen, that's my problem. Until next we're together. Please take extra precautions. I love you.
1: Bye
0: I you get that rose?
1: Stupid.